Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Well, it's my great pleasure to uh, open the GAI seminar series for 2013. Don is uh, Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science and International Studies and Associate Dean of the Graduate School of Public Administration at Yonsei University in Seoul. He's also the Director of Security Strategy for Aerospace Strategy and Technology Institute at Yonsei. Uh, John specialises in international relations theory, Northeast Asian security, political psychology and public opinion, particularly in relation to national identity and foreign policy attitudes. Uh, he's published in a wide range of journals, including international security, and he's also a regular commentator on Northeast Asian security affairs in a range of, in a range of media uh, outlets in the US and across Asia. Uh, he writes a monthly defence column, a monthly column for Defence 21 Plus, South Korea's leading monthly magazine for defence and security. He's now a member of the advisory council on the six-party talks uh, in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade, and a standing member of the Inter-Korean Cooperation Committee for Incheon Metropolitan City. Uh, a, a very strong and impressive CV. So I'd like to um, hand over. Talking to us about engagement and North Korea. Thank you very much, Andrew. Hi, everyone. My name is Jong Kun Choi, but you can just call me Jong, J O N G, and that's my international <coughs> name, so called. Uh, I have a very special relation, personal relations with Australia because I grew up in Australia. I went to high school in Bathurst, New South Wales, and I played rugby for three years. And, and you know, my family used to live in Sydney, North Sydney. Uh, Pimble, and uh, uh, always I don't complain coming to Australia, even if that means 13 or 10 hours of flight and different weather. And yesterday we had about 13 centimeter uh, uh, snow in Korea, and with the wind chill today, the temperature was minus 18 Celsius. So I arrived here at 6 a.m. and I don't complain the weather, and I really love it. And also, Dr. Tony Kim is a good friend of mine way back from the Columbus, Ohio, where I, uh, along with Dr. Kim, uh, did my PhD at Ohio State University. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give a talk about 20 minutes and fast slides and here and there, and, and then I pretty much entertain your question and be falling into discussion and things like that. And. Whether we like it or not, uh, North Korea is a reality, and you know, personally, I live in uh, north of Seoul, suburban city called Ilsan, which means that you know, 38 kilometers uh, south of the DMZ. So, so way that I drive, it takes about 20 minutes or less. So, you know, I live nearby the border area. So then, perhaps my point of view comes from not only scholarly slash theoretical perspective, but also as a person who lives right there in the center of the whole uh, oracle, if you, mean, if you will. And uh, half of the presentation is already published, and the second half would be something that I'm working on. And so basically, one would be policy basis, the second one would be sort of theory based, but I try to mingle and, you know, and talk, uh, try to make it uh, rather interesting and things like that. Uh, my puzzle is this, you know, rather more uh, policy. Uh, that is, how do we resolve North Korea's nuclear problem? 
What should South Korea do if it desires a more stable and manageable strategic environment so that its national interest is maximized? I mean, this is the question that always chief negotiator of the six-party talk, uh, Mr. Im Sung-nam, asked our other member of the advisors. And to be honest with you, since 2008, uh, since I was sitting in the advisory board, and that's the most uh, comfortable job in South Korea foreign policy establishment because since 2008, we did not have six-party talks. So, you know, there's not much, not much to advise. A nice wine and dining, but, you know, it was... Anyway, so this is the question that we always concern because as a personal government, as a citizen living in the core of the nuclear issues, we want to create stable and manageable strategic environment so that our national interest is maximized. And my, essentially my, my essential argument is that we have to give another chance for so-called engagement for the upcoming era. And, and I'm going to give you the reasons why. And whether we like it or not, North Korea is not an easy neighbor. It perhaps as a South Korean scholar who specializes in national security studies, you know, basically North Korea is essentially set of quagmire because it's an ultra-dictatorial state that cannot even fit, fit its own citizen, very defiant against the, perhaps the most powerful state in the world, yet living next door to, you know, rising uh, uh, China. And it tries to yet maximize its own national interest by playing what it does well. So I think that it's, an, it's not an easy neighbor Perhaps it's a paranoid but very clever state because it survived the harsh post-Cold War period when, you know, Soviet Union class, when, you know, it's Eastern European state all class, but essentially survived through. If you remember back in 1990s, early, when socialist state all fell down, we essentially argued back then that North Korea would follow the suit. But it didn't basically survived, not only did it survive, but also it made two power transition from Kim Il-sung to Kim Jong-il, and Kim Jong-il to his uh, son, Kim Jong-un. Certainly star starving, but injuring society. One of the comparative political questions, comparative politics study question is, how come this society never collapses, you know, and never goes against the you know tyranny of the Kim's family, yet still worship you know from the outset. Clearly, from the realist point of view, weak power, but never a collapsing state. But anyway, so then after 20 years, what I mean was you know the first nuclear crisis, 1994, and having 20 years of crisis or 20 years of the problem, so-called. I mean, by definition. Crisis shouldn't last for 20 years. Crisis should last just momentarily. So we should know the following. If should there be any learning and assume that we are a rational actor, North Korea may really want to have nuclear capabilities. The second option, second uh, knowledge, learning, that our options are very limited. We try to threaten them. We try to so-called, you know, give them a lot of incentives, we try to negotiate them out, and we try to do nothing, but essentially 20 years has surpassed, and what we might have is a third nuclear test. And I'm going to talk about third nuclear test, should there be any, 
because it should be different than the first two. And I'm going to tell you, but you know, I cannot tell you many things because there are certain limits to my knowledge. But anyway, but this is a very important question from the political scientist's point of view because in Northeast Asia you have Sino-US uh, power transition and the Korean Peninsula and the Korean. Should there be any power transition politics going on? There are, you know, Korean Peninsula would be falling into one of the hot flashpoints. You know, you're talking about South China Sea and St. Kakao, but also you have uh, a clash of points between Sino power and American power may collide. And also Northeast Asian regional dynamic. If you look at the members of the six-party talk, you have so-called many ING states, China being rising states, and also uh, North Korea is proliferating state, and Japan being a normalizing state, and Russia, I don't know Russia, but you know, maybe South Korea, maybe I don't know, role searching state, because of many regional dynamics in Northeast Asia, and certainly North, North Korea is perceived as impediment to regional stability or cure for regional stability. So anyway, this is a region that has uh, its member state that perceive their sovereignty somehow compromised by other members of the state. You know, Senkaku, Tokto, and you know, historical issue, and also sometimes North Korea perceive their nuclear capability as a symbol of their sovereignty, things like that, so they're very defensive about it. So what do we do to resolve this issue? I mean, these are the four uh, things that we have done so far. Do nothing. Certainly, in my point of view, for the last five years, essentially since 2008, we have done anything. And uh, invade, we did not certainly invade, but this is certainly an option that we could consider. Certainly, we did in Iraq to disarm and essentially change the regime. And we could bribe them a lot of money they cannot handle, spoiled with a you know, great taste of capitalism or you know, make them really fat well, or engage. Let's go over uh, one by one. I think do nothing option is not an option because we cannot do nothing because it will only nurture their existing nuclear program. To, in my own opinion, for the last five years, since 2008, Essentially, what we have done was we, we, we neglected North Korea nuclear capability. We essentially gave a lot of precondition for having them come back to the six-party talk, but those did not work. And also, it will give wrong signals to potential nuclear proliferator because international community, if the international community does nothing, in other words, sort of, ignore, giving them a lot of precondition for coming back to the top, then they can essentially incubate their nuclear program. It will give wrong signals to NPT regime. And, you know, it's basically, it's, it's not an option. And the, another question is, how long can we afford to do nothing, you know? The second option would be invade, just like as we did in, in Iraq. I mean, too many will die. Seoul is just 40 kilometers south of DMZ, and Seoul is about 12 million population megacity, encircled by the Gyeonggi province, and Gyeonggi province is another 30 million population. And Seoul and South Korea is as big as state of uh, 
Indiana in, in the United States, a very tiny state, you know. Um, so that, you know, basically their firepower, North Korea's firepower is concentrated upon our metropolitan area. And so then, you know, some predicts that should there be any, something like this happen, then we are looking at, you know, one or two million population casualty easy, you know, about first 10 days of the full, uh, uh, full out war. So it's a politically in, in, infeasible. And also we have about half a million foreigners living in Seoul too. So then what are we going to do? We're not talking about Baghdad here. We're talking about Seoul, one of the most vibrant international slash metropolitan city in the world. So then any attack on North Korea will invite retaliatory attacks and will devastate the nation and the region. You know, basically, can you, if you're, if you're Japanese, if you're Chinese, can you live up, can you live right next door to a city that may look like Baghdad? What kinds of economic and social signals to, social signals does it give to, you know, region-wide stability? You know, Northeast Asia accounts for more than one-third of the global GDP, and it's only increasing thanks to, you know, rising China. And so, and also South Korean does not like this. Andrea and I talk about this over the uh, uh, lunch. And this is the uh, public opinion data I, I compiled since 2002. <coughs> and if you, if you, uh, this is basically, these are the public opinion poll, push polling data from the uh, Gallup and the major newspaper that I've com uh, compiled and essentially asking a very identical or similar question. Should we use military means to resolve the current situation, being when there is nuclear test or any uh, sinking of the vessels or Yampyeong stuff? And from 2002 to 2012, March, that's the uh, time, uh, uh, expansion of my data, basically, overwhelmingly, South Korean oppose the military means. Point A, the dot line here represents the first nuclear test, and then uh, line B represents the second nuclear test, and then here is when there was, and, and also after 2010 and 11, 12, you have certain a shift here, but only one point when 2000, uh, December of 2010, when there was Yongpyeong. And that was, this is one after the uh, sinking of the Cheonan, the South Korean vessel. See that up until this moment, South Korea prefers still no military means because sinking of Cheonan was not visualized. <coughs> you know, it just got sunk and the news came out and people still doubt, so that people had a mixed feeling. But it dramatically drops down when there was actually Yongpyeong. People saw the shelling. People saw people evacuating from the island. And then suddenly, which is sort of the neck and neck, right? It's still 40 to 60, so. However, after Yongpyeong, uh, public opinion got back to normal. So then overall trend here, I could argue that, you know, South Korean objects to military means. However, with our public opinion could shift should there be any event that's similar to, you know, actual use of military behavior by North Korea. So it's a volatile still. But I don't have the updated version, but uh, 
I don't know. But thing is still, the area, the time area that I cover, pretty much dominated by anti-military option preferred by South Korea. So then, politically, any polit South Korean leader that would use military option be objected by South Koreans themselves, because they are the one who has more to lose. Maybe bribe? Certainly impossible, because this will only increase the moral hazard. You know. And the second question is, how much should we give them? How much is enough? Even if we satisfy them, how, what kinds of guarantee do we have? They will conform to, conform to you know, uh, our, uh, commi their commitment. So we're not sure if North Korea will keep up the promise. And how much is enough? So then, so far what I've done is uh, uh, bribery, in other words, is unconditional giving to North Korea will not work. And also invasion is politically infeasible and it's morally maybe impossible either. And realistically, South Korea should be a lot of cost, so therefore they will not support and uh, do nothing is not certainly an option. So then what do we do? I mean, these are the standing foreign policy options that we have done so far. And I think these are not bad, realistically speaking. The question is, what comes after this? You know, make sure that South North Korea is warned of its bad behavior. Make sure that South Korea begins to talk with North Korea. This is the point that I sort of sneak in and basically try to make an option because what we have done so for the last five years is that we try to make sure that North Korea is warned of any bad behavior, but we did not talk to North Korea. Basically, what we have done, done is, what we have done is you change first and you come back to the table and then we will talk. But this is something that I try to promote and sort of so-called engagement policy school in Seoul or Sunshiners tries to promote, you know. And also make sure the South Korean and the uh, PRC, People's Republic of China, work very closely together to prevent North Korea from exporting any, you know, uh, nuclear devices and things like that, bad things. Let, make sure that let them uh, not proliferate. To make this thing work, we need to change assumptions. In other words, our psychological biases, our attitude. And this is really painful. I'll come back to you why. Hating North Korea is one thing. I hate North Korea, my friends. I really do. You know. But knowing that we have no alternative is also painful. Because, sentimentally speaking, when they bomb Yonpyeong Island, you know, on the day I really drank a lot because, you know, the fact that we had no option to retaliate, we have no military asset to retaliate, only aggravate the situation. In other words, sometimes when you initiate the engagement slash sunshine policy toward bad behavior person, then first lesson you should do that, you should give them is that if you provoke provocation should be met with the punishment. But if you conform to our negotiation, then we reward. In other words, you would approach this bad person with a carrot on your right hand, but on your left hand you need to hold your stick. So if it does really bad behavior, you have to slap. But we couldn't do it. So I also conserved for uh, South Korea's Air Force 
and I basically tell them what kind of weapon system we, we need to increase our deterrence posture. But that's military option. Military option has to be kept, yet we couldn't do it. So my, my stance here is that you know, we need to change some assumptions here. First one is that North Korea is not crazy. They may act very differently, but things that they have their own bounded rationality and very rational state. And I'll come back to this, why is such? And, and uh, for the last five years, we have this mid-fight assumption that you know, North Korea is on the way to collapse. But I think that North Korea is a sustainable state. First of all, historically speaking, rarely state falls. And also, even if state falls, I, when we say state falls, that essentially means regime falls. Libya didn't fall, Gaddafi fell, right? Egypt didn't fall, the, the regime fell. In other words, you have a change of regime, just because you might have a change of Kim Jong-un regime, that doesn't necessarily mean that North Korea as a state would fall. And even if North Korea, North Korea's Kim Jong-il falls, that doesn't necessarily automatically end and automatically allow us to intervene North Korea because North Korea is a legitimate member of the United Nations. And as a member of the United Nations, we cannot invade unless there's an invitation from the North Korean falling regime, unless there's a genocide going on. Because the United Nations Charter stipulates that unless there is the basis are to be responsible to protect. You know, under these two conditions that I just elaborated, foreign powers cannot intervene with the domestic politics of North Korea. And the last one, this is something that is going on nowadays. North Korea may be a pseudo-defect nuclear state. Maybe. Depends on how you frame it, by the way. It took more than 15 years for the United States to recognize Pakistan as a, a you know, nuclear state. They don't want to out loud recognize it even now. But thing is, unless you are the member of the five nuclear power state, maybe you know it's it's hard to officially recognize one state as an official nuclear state. But uh, Chuck Hagel, who you know uh, who is going to be a United States uh, Secretary of Defense, in his hearing, basically said you know North Korea may be pseudo de facto nuclear state, whether we like it or not. So then these, with these three uh, assumptions that we could change, we need to form our new policy stances. Because if you, moment that you believe that North Korea is crazy, we cannot formulate rational policies. How are you going to formulate rational policy toward crazy actor? I mean, international relations one-on-one, nobody's crazy in international politics. And also if you assume that North Korea is collapsing, then we should stand by and do nothing, right? Because why are you trying to negotiate or invade the country that you believe will be falling? So basically, this is strategic engagement that I'm uh, writing nowadays. Basically, you have a two concepts of reciprocity in international politics. Strict reciprocity, diffuse reciprocity, two concepts. It differs by two notions. One is equivalence, and also contingency. Basically, strict reciprocity is one eye for an eye and, and, and you know, nose for nose. In other words, I give you $100 worth of, uh, of food, then that you need to change your behavior up to $100 worth. 
and now it has to be done now. So basically, it, it, it's, it's a one-to-one, you know, almost simultaneous uh, in, uh, uh, contract. So then it has to happen between total strangers and enemy in order to formulate, accumulate so-called trust. On the other hand, Daifu's reciprocity comes from the uh, actor who has more interest in establishing the relationship between me and the other actor. In other words, as I just told you, South Korea needs to have more manageable and more stable inter-Korea relations and also Northeast Asian uh, strategic environment. So then you need to have stable relationship with North Korea. And that's rational uh, logic. So then what you do is that your final benefit of having such a stable relationship would be having stable uh, 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 relation and that will pay off. So then what you do is that you basically give them incentives now and assume that giving them and talking to them for that period of time will guarantee communicable and also visible, and also transpar- transparent relationship that's so that you have more manageable ability. So then, strategic engagement has to be based upon diffuse reciprocity. Anything based upon strict reciprocity would not give an exit strategy. And then, so basically, your total outcome, final outcome, will be re- reconciliation on the Korean Peninsula. So then what you do is that you supply economic needs, investment, social, invest social infrastructure, provide fertilizer and agriculture technology. And I basically, people argue this, and even conservatives on the Korean, in Korean society sort of agree this. Because if you give them food now, military will use it. But if you give fertilizers, military cannot use it. Some extreme Conservatives would argue we cannot even give them fertilizer because fertilizer essentially chemicals and chemical can be turned into bombs and things like that. But anyway, agricultural technologies increase foreign direct investment. On my way to the campus, I basically looked at my iPhone and, and logged on to Yonhap News and basically uh, uh, North Korea Authority announced a statement uh, today that should South Korean government, quote and unquote, touch or compromise Kaesong Industrial Complex, we will shut down Kaesong Industrial Complex. Don't you dare shut down Kaesong Industrial Complex. For those of you who may not be aware of Kaesong Industrial Complex is that, you know, basically Kaesong is a border city of, uh, of North Korea, right north of Seoul. And pretty much it, its population is about uh, 1,500,000. 000 and Kaesong Industrial Complex is essentially pseudo-defect of free economic zone invested by South Korea during Kim Dae-jung and Noh administration, liberal government. And that has about 128 South Korean small to medium-sized uh, factories there, firms, that hires about more than 6,000 Kaesong citizens, mostly women, so then workers. And we pay them about $120 per month for their labor, and half of it is taken by North Korean government, and half of them goes to their uh, pocket. And trust me, people want to work there because it's the most nicest working environment. So then you know, it's a hard cash, so basically they really depend on it. But Kaesong Industrial Complex site used to be a North Korea's tank infantry site, so that anything that happened, they can always march into Seoul 
very quickly. So basically what we did was we pushed the offensive force north of Kazan, used to be south of Kazan. And increased interaction <coughs> and, and re-initiated intergovernmental, basically small things. These may sound this may sound nothing to do with the denuclearization, right? Because this policy is heading for reconciliation. It requires us to change our national identity. That question, because why do we have to change when they are trying to nuclearize? First of all, one might have to argue whether nuclear weapon of North Korea has direct threat on South Korea territory. You know, what kinds of audience Pyongyang is trying to talk to with this nuclear weapon in their uh, right hand, you know? Because their conventional weapon is still strong enough to devastate South Korea anyway. So why, why nuclear weapon? I'll come back to the motivation anyway. But if you, so far what we have done is we try to uh, have this hostility by deterrence. So therefore, our natural interest has been sort of, let's deter North Korea. On the other hand, the engagement policy is that you need to have some sort of peaceful coexistence and deterrence still needed, it, but you need to have more diffuse reciprocity stance strategic engagement. And threat perception, North Korea may be a threat, and certainly it is, but it is threat to contain, so as I just told you, we need to have a good military force and never allow them to provoke. On the other hand, simultaneously, we should frame North Korea as an opportunity to engage. Because, you know, otherwise we cannot peacefully coexist. An action plan, as I just told you, strict reciprocity to diffuse reciprocity. This is sort of the mission. However, politically speaking, strategy engagement for reconciliation is not easy. Because, as I just elaborated, it requires my change in identity. You know, a lot of things. And also, it, it, it requires a change in my perception of the enemy, and also requires a change in my perception of the relational identity. How am I going to frame myself vis-a-vis -vis North Korea? Is it partner to cooperate, or my enemy to threat, enemy to contain? And also, it's a very politically costly it's a very difficult policy position in South Korea, considering that you know it's politically not popular. It's not popular, to be honest with you. You know, by 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 margin, I belong to the so-called you know uh, Sunshine School, but Sunshine School tends to be rather small uh, in number. And also, it's hard to rally the supporters. Supporters are pretty much, in other words, in in in, in South Korea domestic politics, they tend to, and they tend to be more boisterous whenever North Korea provokes and basically confirms their perception that, hey, North Korea is a threat, right? And, and also, it requires rather patience because diffuse reciprocity entails that even if they provoke, you need to be more consistent in dealing with this bad person so that at the end of the day you can peacefully coexist. With this, 
how are you going to sort of denuclearize North Korea or so-called resolve North Korea problem? I think we need to revisit why North Korea quest for nuclear capabilities. Conventional wisdom has it that North Korea somehow trying to develop nuclear weapons to negotiate. But I don't really buy that argument. I guess I was the very few person in Korea security community that even seven, eight years ago, North Korea would not negotiate. Because if you look at North Korean uh, nuclear developmental history, it goes way back to 1962. What happened in 1962? Cuban Missile Crisis. And Cuban Missile Crisis, what happened? You know, Khrushchev wasn't able to protect Kim Il-sung's best buddies, you know, Castro's, Fidel Castro's nuclear capability and his sovereignty. So in 1962, Kim Il-sung imports so-called experimental nuclear reactor and installed in Yongbyon, where it's now known to be, you know, nuclear side of North Korea. And basically, Intel, if you go back to their document, we should concern maybe seek for possibilities of, you know, having our own independent nuclear capability because so-called our big brothers may not be able to protect us. So I think if you look at sort of Scott Sagan's Why Nations Go Nuclear article published in the International Security, he elaborates three uh, models, security model, domestic politics model, and, and so-called symbol of national sovereignty. The security model is a very simple. Basically, if there's an external threat and you're a poor country, nuclear option may be the cheapest and most economic and more rational option to have it. Because if you have 100 tanks, it's more expensive to have a very old you know, Nagasaki-class uh, uh, nuclear weapon. Because if you have 100 tanks, you need to have a manpower, you need to maintenance, you need to change the oil, things like that. You know, ammunition, that doesn't really elevate your strategic asset. However, one or two nuclear weapons give you or feel like giving you a lot of more power. So external threat may motivate state to have, you know, go nuclear. On the other hand, domestic politics model is that there is always winner and loser in nuclear politics in any countries. For example, I mean, this state who would be based upon domestic politics of nuclearization, basically with Intel this, they still <coughs> exaggerate threat outside. However, what they're going to do is, while they exaggerate threat outside, they're trying to formulate the reasons why certain countries go nuclear. So basically, they make a domestic coalition between nuclear scientists, military, and also politicians. Because nuclear scientists are there, the one who gets a lot of projects, a lot of governmental funding, so that they can go, you know, they can do all research. And military, especially navies and air force, has a lot more to gain because, you know, uh, when they have a nuclear, they need to have a delivery vehicle, submarines, you know, long-range bombers, missile technology, all the money and budget makes, you know, a certain military faction a lot stronger, so they are the beneficiary. And certain politicians of the district that may host nuclear silos and nuclear laboratory that may give them a lot more employment opportunity in their own political district, which give them more chance for re-election, things like that, so that they may have domestic nuclear coalition. 
The third one is sort of sovereignty or norm model, symbol model. Like, for example, France, French model. French may be a, a, a very glorious country, but in, in, if you look at France war history, after the Napoleonic War, French did not win a single war. They had a really hard time in World War I, hard time in World War II. After World War II, they got kicked out by a Vietnamese and they had their, their disgrace in Suez Canal. So the goal basically, when he, he basically walked out of the NATO and basically argued that French nuclear capability should be able to reach anywhere in the world, which will symbolize uh, French pride. To me, I think any of the motivation that North Korea might have still be resolved by strategic engagement policy. If North Korea quest for nu nuclear weapons is driven by security needs, then engagement will reduce its threat perception. If you have longer-term interaction with North Korea that may initiate their you know, lowering threat perception through social economic interaction. So then, basically, it will lower down their uh, so-called realist-based motivation. Uh, and the second one would be if North Korea's quest for nuclear weapons is driven by domestic politics needs. But it's driven by so-called domestic coalition. For example, military junta of North Korea, nuclear scientists, and nuclear uh, weapon base, you know, all this, you know, uh, vested interest group in North Korea. That engagement will basically not only lower down their threat perception, but also crumble and weaken their nuclear links. Because when you have open door policy to these uh, people and a country, then outside information will be more freely flow, and they will, they cannot exacerbate threat outside, and their beneficiary ground will be a lot more weakened. So they basically engagement will still work. And last one would be, if North Korea quest for nuclear weapon is driven by their sovereignty, symbol, in other words, this is something that we hear every day from North Korea. Nuclear weapon is their symbol of the sovereignty. And last year, when they come up with a new constitution, first, one in the line that their preamble is that North Korea is a nuclear state. We are so proud of it. Nuclear weapon stands for, symbolizes their sovereignty. This is really hard. Once they believe the nuclear weapon is their symbol of sovereignty, it's hard to change. And, and, however, it also gives a, more chances for engagement policy. If you believe in a really wrongful manner, nuclear weapon is their sovereignty, that it, it needs to require their, it, it requires more stubborn change in their national identity. In other words, Having nuclear weapons is a wrong choice. Having nuclear weapon will not contribute to their national development. So that engagement will give them alternative future. So that it will somehow require or initiate their change in perception or change in identity. So in that manner, engagement still works. I mean, obviously, final assumption here is that we endure 20 years. You know, I just met Dr. Kim here, but you know, those of us grown up in Seoul in the 90s, we call ourselves as a nuclear or X generation because we grew up, in, uh, we grew up with a nuclear uh, crisis. 
1994, I still remember people hailed toward, you know, supermarket buy lamens and water. Now we don't do that anymore. Maybe our threat perception is just got too dull or we're not really sensitive enough or anything. Or maybe we're so used to it. Or rationally speaking, we may perceive that North Korea is no longer threat. I don't know. But thing is, moment that we assume or change our assumption and believe that this is a long-term situation and long-term problem, that it requires long-term solution, long-term policy. <coughs> I think engaging North Korea is still a valid and therefore require, uh, deserve a second choice and make it feel comfortable to open its new, open economy gradually to the outside, make the reform faction stronger, and the revision is marginalized. North Korea is no era. You know, when there was a Jasmine revolution in Tunisia and you know, Egypt, people believed that North Korea would follow the suit. But we followed that mistake back in 1990s. Maybe it may happen only if North Korea is open enough to have Twitter. North Korea is open enough to have Facebook. But what I'm saying is that we have to make them open enough so much so that they can have Facebook. Therefore, whether North Korea would collapse or change within, that will happen. Without any open, it won't happen. My last slide. Many people criticize engagement policy because we gave them too much. So then what I did was that I went back to the, the, the government data book and I sorted out every single every single hour aid to North Korea and sort them out. It apparently, from 1998 to 2008, 10 years of the liberal government in South Korea, we gave them $8.2 billion. $8.2 billion. However, remember light water reactor? When the 1994 Clinton administration essentially made a general agreement in Geneva and basically gave our gave the, the invoice bill to South Korean government, and South Korean government paid four billion American dollars to construction of the light reactor. Four billion dollars. Out of the eight point two. But obviously the light water reactor, you know, went into the drill. And approximately one point eight billion dollars went into Kaesong industrial complex and Kungang. Kaesong still we enjoy and for the first time in six years Last year we enjoyed surplus. Certain, you know, companies are making profit. And Kumgang is obviously shut down now. But still, our facilities and buildings are still there, enjoyed by South Koreans. I'm talking about Kaesong. And approximately $1.8 billion went into food, fertilizer, and medicine. This is actual aid that we gave to South North Korea. $1.8 billion for 10 years. And Approximately $0.6 billion went into road and rail, construction of road linking to Kaesong and rail and things like that. Because of the $8.2 billion, this is what we have enjoyed. Two summits, 215 ministry level meetings for 10 years, and at about, about approximately 400,000 inter-Korean exchanges, and 20,000 separate family reunions, and two joint economic projects, Kaesong and, and Kumgang. And above all, you know, we knew whom to call should there be any problem. For the, five, for the last five years, when we had do-nothing policy, 
sentimentally it's understandable because they bombed us they sank our vessel but question was we did not know whom to call in Pyongyang we had to call Washington DC and Beijing to find out what their motivation was Hate, if, I mean we're talking about in, in, I teach international relations 101 in my school first thing that we teach is that states are rational so then rational in a way that you know Real, realist one-on-one again. Either you maximize your security or you maximize your power. South Korea can maybe try to maximize power, but more realistic ways to maximize our security. Then if you have a very not easy neighbor, you at least need to know whom to call. So then, this is the sort of the things that we envision here, right? From conflict to cooperation, distance to interdependence, security dilemma to security community. Things that we always talk from a liberalist point of view. This, the letter, the half part of my presentation is still on the writing and a little uh, bumpy, uh, uh, beg your pardon, however. But the thing is, still informed by three contending IR theories. You know, liberal school economy interdependence, you know, functionalism, and changing identity, you know, uh, informed by constructivist. And the realist, too. So that, you know, maybe timing is really bad in order to promote my idea. Thank you very much. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.